we do it every other month, the first Wednesday of every other month. And the first two, this is something new that we instated this year. It has just been such an encouragement to see the turnout uh, to, for people just come and worship and pray. And uh, how vital that is, not only to pray for one another in this church, but also to pray for us as we make an impact in this uh, community. And uh, the, what I'm probably most encouraged by in the first two corporate prayer nights are just how intergenerational those nights have been. Uh, that we have a really great representation from people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all across. And you see them praying together side by side for one another in those different life stages. I mean, that is such a good picture and encouragement for me. And so I would encourage you, if you have not been a part of uh, that, to come this Wednesday. You do not need to be a professional prayer. You do not need to be a mature Christian. You come as you are, and it's just uh, a great night. So would you open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. We have one passage left in Mark chapter 7. That's page 843 on the Blue Pew Bible. And the book of Mark, it really splits pretty evenly into two halves. You have Mark 1 through 8, and then Mark 9 through 16. And, and there's a, as we'll see when we get to Mark 8, a, a really change in direction in this gospel. But there's one question that persists through the whole first half of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And the question is, who is this guy? Who is this man? It's being asked by everyone whom Jesus comes in contact with. He is teaching and he is healing and he's driving out evil over and over again. And as we've seen week after week, some people love it, some people hate it. But everybody is just asking the same question. Who is this guy? They can't seem to nail him down and that makes him all the more fascinating. Jesus has become predictably unpredictable at this point. I was thinking about this and, and how whether we realize it or not, anytime we begin a new relationship, whether it is one that we go into by choice or one we're forced into, we have to ask the same question. Again, whether we realize it or not, who is this person? What are they about? What's their makeup? What are they passionate about? What are they trying to do? What's their purpose in life, right? It could happen by choice, like you begin a new dating relationship, or there's a potential new friendship, or you're coming into a new church, and, and you're, you're asking this question, who, who is this person? And then there's also relationships where it's kind of forced on you to enter a new relationship, all right? You got a new boss this week. Somebody just moved in next door, your daughter texted you and said she wants you to meet her new boyfriend, right? I mean, there are, I, I'm just not ready for that text yet, all right? Like, I need to be sanctified so much more before I enter that season of life. But, but there's these relationships that you don't have a choice. They are just kind of sprung upon you. And what happens is we, we keep asking these same, these same questions. You have to take in everything about them. What do they say? What don't they say? What's their nonverbal language like? What, what do they make time for? What do they seem to love most? Where are they like spending money? And all the while, the question beneath all the questions is, who is this guy? Who is this woman? And some people that you're going to come across in life, you're, you're going to nail them down really quick. It's not going to be difficult at all. No issues. But there's others that are difficult to figure out, Right? 
And, and the people that are really difficult to figure out become all the more fascinating as you're trying to figure them out because they have so many sides to them, you can't nail them down. Who is this man? That's the question we are seeing every time we open the gospel of Mark. And I feel like as I am stand up here and I preach through this gospel, I, really, I feel like I'm just a storyteller week after week. Like everything's a short story in the gospel of Mark. Everything's this scene of Jesus doing one of three things. Um, he's teaching, he's healing, he's driving out evil. That's all we've seen for about five months now. And the stories in Mark 1 through 8, they're similar, but they're unique. Like siblings in a family, they generally look alike, but each one has its own distinguishable features. Just enough unique detail that makes each story in and of itself fascinating. And that's what I love about this gospel. Because every single week we get to ask this question. Okay, why this story? Why is this one in here? What is it about this one? And the story we'll read this morning is only found in Mark's gospel. He's the only one to specifically speak about this man that Jesus will encounter. And so our task this morning is to find out why. Why this one? What's unique about this one? It's a short passage. And so how we're going to go through it this morning, we're going to read a verse or two at a time as we go. And so let's start Mark chapter 7, verses 31. Again, last passage in Mark 7 this morning. We're going to start just with verses 31 and 32. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on them, lay his hand on him. Uh, if you were here last weekend, or maybe you were away for Memorial Day, and, uh, but if you were here and can recall, Jesus has just left the borders of Israel for the first and only recorded time in his three-year ministry. One trip, we're told about, where he actually ventured outside of Israel, and it happens here. He went from Galilee, which is the northern, kind of more rural half of Israel, and he went northwest to the non-Jewish coast cities of Tyre and Sidon. And it's in Tyre that he was encountered by the Phoenician woman that we saw last week. A, a woman who proved to be the first person in the Gospel of Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. It was not his disciples. It was not the educated Pharisees. It was a non-Jewish woman who was part of a people that were diametrically opposed to the Jews. And she is the one who hears and understands and displays great faith. And it was ironic and it was incredible, but that was last week. I have to leave it there. All right. And so Mark says, he, now from here, he returned to the region of the Sea of Galilee. Listen, by going through Sidon and into the region of the Decapolis. You hear that? Probably means nothing, right? I mean, that's, he's just telling you where he's going. But here's the thing. Sidon is not on the way to the Sea of Galilee. So here's where a map will actually help us. Um, Sidon is to the north of Tyre. So you have Sea of Galilee right there, kind of front uh, center, and then Tyre, and then Sidon is north. The Decapolis is on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So do you hear what Mark just said? He's in Tyre. He wanted to go back to the Sea of Galilee, but he goes to Sidon around to the Decapolis, back to the region. It kind of just makes no sense. 
right? That would be like one of us saying, um, hey, we're going to Philly today after church, but we're going to go by way of Albany. Some of you have no idea still what I'm talking about, all right? We're just like, yeah, everybody's laughing. Um, so here's why that wouldn't make sense, right? Philly is southwest of us. Albany is north. It would make no sense unless you intentionally wanted to go the long way. This loop that Jesus took was a 120-mile loop that he decides to go all the way around and completely bypass going back through Galilee. So a um, couple things, right? Jesus either got lost, took a wrong turn, or he intentionally wanted to go that way. And I hesitate, just me, to think that Jesus got lost. I just don't think that happened, right? If for anyone else, maybe that's an option. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I was always a little bit of an anxious, like, backseat driver who always knew when we were lost. Um, and so this is right pre-GPS. And whenever um, my dad would take a wrong turn, I'm always kind of freaking out in the back. And I'm like, Dad, did you, are we lost? And, and you know, my dad, who just heard, obviously heard this from me all the time, he, he would have a saying that's still a joke in our family, he, he said, no, 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 I'm just taking the scenic route. <laughs> now, I'm not lost. I know it's longer, but you see, this is the scenic route. I meant to go this way. So I don't think Jesus got lost. So why is Jesus taking the scenic route? Uh, we don't need to spend too much time speculating, right? The Bible doesn't come out and tell us, but I think a couple things we probably could think about here. Um, one, perhaps he knew how furious the Pharisees were. Remember, that's kind of the reason he left Israel in the first place. Things got really heated between him and the Pharisees. It was not time yet for him to lay down his life, so he decided to get out of town. So maybe he just didn't want to walk back through Galilee and risk getting picked up by them. Also, this land was run by Roman emperor, our ruler, Herod Antipas. The same Herod who had John the Baptist arrested and beheaded a couple chapters ago. Another reason, I think this is probably more likely, is that he knows that he has just the 12 with him at this point, meaning just the 12 apostles, and, and he's always fighting for time with them to pour into them, and so he wants to be alone, and, and so one commentator called it, he decided to go on the 120-mile walking seminar. He wanted extended time and opportunity to disciple them, to pour into them, knowing they would be the ones entrusted with carrying the message forward once he was gone. But either way, they take the long way. And they head down into the region of the Decapolis. Again, it's still a mostly Gentile region. Gentile meaning non-Jewish. It had more Jews than Tyre and Sidon did, but still predominantly Gentile on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And at some point along the way, he has brought a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. He could not hear and he could not speak. And before we even see what happens, I, there, there's something to note here. Of all the people Jesus encounters, even in the Gospel of Mark, there is a notable diversity in how they get before him. Do you notice that? As we do this week after week, just think about this week versus last week even. Last week we saw a woman upon her own initiative, upon her own desperation, seek Jesus out after she heard about him, boldly go up to him and continually beg him to help her daughter. She heard about him, she saw him, she went up to him despite 
every cultural norm in the book that would tell her she shouldn't do that. And then this week, literally the next passage, you have a man who could not hear, probably has no idea who Jesus is, no idea what he's about. He could not speak, so he could not even ask others about him, even if he saw that crowds seemed to follow him, um, let alone would he have any opportunity to approach Jesus on his own and say anything. He is brought to Jesus by others, and he's probably a little confused as to why. You see what there is to note here? There are many paths to Jesus. Some will seek him out. They will hear about him and want to read about him and study him and, and approach him on their own terms. Others will be wounded so badly that they have nowhere else to turn, and so they go to Jesus out of desperation. And yet others are just passively brought to, before him by people who love them. You see, this is still true today. There are many paths that lead us to one Savior. And praise God, there's not one way to come before Jesus. And praise God, there's not only one life that will lead you to his feet. So let's read the next two verses. Mark 7, 33 and 34. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epithata, that is, be opened. Three things we're going to see for the rest of our time this morning. Three things. First, the compassion of Jesus. Again, you just can't nail this guy down. There's so many sides to him. Like, who is he? Last week, he was approached by someone, and he responded with a harsh, kind of almost, you felt like, sarcastic parable. He said, let the children be fed first. It's not good to throw their food to the dogs. What? And now this week, someone else placed before him. And what does he do? He takes physical hold of this man and privately pulls him aside from the crowd. Who is this guy? You can't nail him down. I want to pause here. Just consider for a moment, we're reading this quickly, I know, but consider for a moment what this man's life would have been like. He can't hear, and he can't speak. Imagine what that would have been like. All he could do is see and feel a world that he is isolated from. And his whole life, he can see how he's probably made to be a spectacle by everyone humiliated, stared at, confused all the while as to why is this happening and wondering why does no one else seem to struggle like I have to struggle? Why does nobody else deal with this? Why is everybody else speaking? Why is everybody else hearing? Why me? Just think about that. And so Jesus, knowing he's been a spectacle his entire life, decides, you know what? This is not a miracle I want everyone else to see. I want him to experience privacy maybe for the first time. 
I want him to have one-on-one time. And then out of compassion, he uses physical touch to bring about divine healing. Why? Every other time we've seen Jesus heal, he just, he just spoke, right? Just a few words and the person was healed. It, it even seems he has been intentional to not do too much physical action, to not say too much as if people might wrongly get the impression that he's doing witchcraft or he's doing magic or he's doing a, a mantra to work up the power. It's always been simple power to heal, but not this time. Why? Jesus does these things to heal this man, not because he needed to, but because the man needed him to. He uses nonverbal sign language because that is the only language this man would understand. I'm going to put my fingers in your ears and then take them out, and with it I will take away the blockage of deafness. And I'm going to put my hand on your tongue and take it off. And with it, I will remove the blockage of speech. And then he looked up to heaven. So this man knows only God could do something like this. Only God could remove you from the shackles that have kept you down, kept you deaf, kept you mute. Only God can do this. This is the compassionate, predictably unpredictable Savior who gives each person he comes across exactly what they need to be made well. Church, Jesus will always give you what you need. And he handles people as individuals with compassion based upon what they need, not just coming and ministering in broad strokes. Do you believe this? That Jesus will always give you what you need. But as I read these verses, you know what the most intriguing part of this healing is? You know me, I, 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 when I study passages, I just ask questions. Why is that there? Why, why is that not there? You know what the number one question for me in this passage was? Did you catch it? Jesus, before he said, be opened. You know what Mark tells us? Jesus sighed. Did you catch it? The the word there indicates a deep sigh, like a moan, like this expression of pain. And doesn't that seem odd there? Why would Jesus be pained when he knows he's about to miraculously heal this man? It's his compassion. He is showing grief and he is grieving over all this man has suffered in his life. He's showing pain over the brokenness of this world that was brought about by rebellion against God. It's it's not that this man's sin caused his disability, but he's part of a fallen creation that was and is fractured by sin. By rebelling against God and the brokenness of the world just grieved him. Jesus sighed as a result of seeing and feeling the weight of a fallen world. It affected him. I don't think he did that for show. 
I don't think he did that just to pretend like he was pained. I think he was really grieved even as he was about to heal this man. We see this all throughout the Gospels. I think the most profound case is in John chapter 11 when Jesus' friend named Lazarus died. And he gets to the tomb where Mary and Martha are and and Mary and Martha are just heartbroken. And even though, think about this, even though he knows he's about to go raise Lazarus from the dead, First, we read the shortest verse in the Bible. You know what it was? Jesus wept. He's about to raise him from the dead, but first, Jesus wept. It's his compassion and his entering into grief alongside others as they grieved, even while knowing he was going to make it right in the end. Jesus was compassionate because he came as an embodied person to minister to embodied people. And this just knocked me over when I'm studying this because I am so guilty of just easily separating our physical from our spiritual. But both are fallen. And both will be resurrected. And both emotionally affected Jesus. If we're going to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to learn this. And I think we need to do better. I need to do better. To have faith in Jesus and his finished work and in his promises to make all things right, this does not mean we ought to be emotionally removed and without compassion in this world when we see and experience physical brokenness. And to think that I've even been in this place where I've done this and and say to others, maybe in not so many words, that we shouldn't grieve so much over times of trial or we shouldn't grieve so much when we see suffering in the world because, uh, because we believe in Christ. Listen, that is wrong. It's flat out wrong. Our Savior grieved over the physical and emotional pain of others even while knowing he was about to heal them. And it's only when we grieve over the kind of brokenness in this world, the the brokenness that leads to hunger and starvation and to sickness and disability and, and to mental illness and to poverty and to fleeing refugees that we will actually be empowered by God to step into those spaces and do something about it. And... This will probably get me in trouble, but I, just, uh, I almost took it out, and I just had to put it back in this morning. If we claim to be pro-life, which is why we do labor to help Lighthouse Pregnancy Center in this season of compassion, and we hope to see the systematic killing of the unborn illegalized as far-fetched as that seems, so we also will be pro-life when it comes to having compassion for welcoming the refugee who is not safe in their own country. And the most heartbreaking thing about that is that the the flack I will get is go, oh man, he's going political on us. And it's not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. And it doesn't mean we don't care about security or we don't care about vetting processes or systems, but it means that both sides of the aisle ought to be pro-life. And that's not political. That we want to care for the unborn and we want to care for the person who's being systematically killed in their own country where they need to find refuge. And I need to do better. And the church in America, we need to do better. Lord, help us. Jesus sighed before he healed. Oh, that we'd have ears to hear 
and the eyes to see the compassion of our Savior this morning. Let's keep going. Mark 7, verses 35 and 36. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. First, we saw the compassion of Jesus, and now we see the response of man. That the man is healed. Like, I know it's becoming normative for us to read that and go, oh, that's awesome, he's healed. But the man is healed. Can you imagine this? He's been deaf and mute for his entire life, and now in a moment he hears, and now in a moment he can speak. Like, are you serious? I, we can't imagine, but let me put it like this. Have you ever had a really bad sore throat that has lasted just for days? A sore throat that just wouldn't go away, and and every morning you're reminded by it because you wake up and the first swallow just kills. You ever been in that moment? Talking hurts. Eating and drinking hurts. Like just a really awful sore throat. Now I want you to just think about how amazing is it the first morning you wake up and realize it's gone. You've been in that moment, right, where you wake up and you take a few swallows and nothing hurts and you say something out loud to yourself and it's like, I'm back. I'm better. It doesn't hurt. And like, doesn't that want you to make you just like jump through the roof? Like people in your house are like, what is this dude doing? Right? Like, because every other morning we wake up with no sore throat. We just go about our day. We take that for granted. But day one, coming off a long, brutal sickness, you're the most joyful person on the block. I'm better. That is just a tiny fraction of this man's joy. And you see what Mark tells us. Not only does he speak, but he speaks plainly. Another word that could translate to is is clearly. That's even more incredible. There's no learning curve for him. There's no speech therapist that needs to be brought in. He can just talk, and now people can understand. Why? Because Jesus said, be opened. And Jesus charges him to tell no one something he's done routinely so far in Mark. Not, not because he doesn't want this man to enjoy his newfound freedoms, but because he knows the uproar it tends to cause. Which will make it further divisive among the people and, and, and really deter him from doing the work he wants to do when everyone just starts losing their mind. Because there will be a time. There will be a time following his death and resurrection that he will charge all of his followers to go and spread his name, but not yet. So Jesus presses him, be silent. But I don't know, I'm kind of on the other guy's side this time. Like, I totally get it. He can speak. And so the man and the people who brought him to Jesus, they can't help themselves, right? It's just too incredible. And so not only do they proclaim his name, but they do it zealously. There is no better testimony than a personal transformation. Jesus changed me. He healed me. He freed me from the shackles of of brokenness. A truthful, objective witness to the power of Jesus was and still is the most convincing argument for Christ in this world. 
Let's finish up the passage with the final verse in Mark 7. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Third and last, the shock of the crowds. We have the compassion of Jesus, we have the response of man, and we have the the shock of the crowds. It's in this verse where we understand why this story, Mark? Why this one? And it's here that he reveals another layer of just trying to answer the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? As it builds up to chapter 8, when Simon Peter will be the first one to finally proclaim, you are the Christ. This story and this verse serves as a fulfillment to a promise that was made 700 years prior by a guy named Isaiah. Mark uses a single word in the Greek to say, deaf hear and the mute speak. I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar, nor can I even pronounce it. But the word is moglilalos. And I tell you that because that word is used one other time in the Bible. Isaiah 35. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but by the time of the first century, there was a, a Greek translation called the Septuagint, which is what most first century Jews were aware of and probably even read from, including Jesus, because they spoke Greek because of the rise and spread of the Roman Empire by this time. And Isaiah 35.5 is the only other place that word is seen in the Bible. So I want to put the verses on the screen, 3 through 6 of Isaiah 35, to provide some context. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like the deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is where Mark wants to bring us. Isaiah 35. It's, it's a transition chapter. If you know the book of Isaiah, it is 66 chapters long. And the whole first half talks about judgment. And the whole back half talks about salvation. If you've read the first half of Isaiah, it is brutal. It is tough sledding getting through some of those chapters. There's some hard things in there. And then chapter 35. And then a transition to the whole back half where Isaiah speaks of God's salvation that will come to both Israel and to the nations throughout the back half. And in this transition chapter, Isaiah says, Behold, your God will come. The deaf shall hear and the mute shall speak. Mark is telling us Jesus is the king. Jesus is God. He's the one who's coming to you. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. The time has come. But here's where it dances. Do you notice in those verses in Isaiah 35, we read, God will come with vengeance. He will come with recompense. That, that word means payment he will come with the payment of God. And here's the twist of the whole Bible story. The twist of the meta-narrative of the storyline of the Bible 
is that Jesus has not come to bring the vengeance of God, but to bear it. He's come to bear it by going to the cross and dying for the sins of those who put their faith in him. Jesus has not come to make the payment. Jesus has come to be the payment. By laying his life down, he provides the ransom and takes God's wrath upon himself through which we can go free. He will come and save you, but he will do so by taking on death himself. This is the gospel. Not that we deserve being saved. Not that we deserve being freed from the shackles that are upon us, but that Jesus, the King, has come and he has willingly took our punishment even unto death so that we will have life. And now, brothers and sisters, we who have been saved by repenting of our sin and believing in the name of Jesus, who died on the cross and conquered the grave, who's currently reigning on the throne, awaiting the day he will return and make all things right, we have been given the charge to zealously proclaim his name. We now can and do speak plainly of what Christ has done to save our lives. And we join together in the church Sunday after Sunday to proclaim that truth. And then we are equipped to go and do it in the places in which we live, work, and play during the week. To proclaim his name. Because the one who has promised to come has come. And he's done it. I want to invite the worship team to come back up now. And as we prepare our hearts to take communion this morning... I am so grateful that providentially we are in this passage on a communion Sunday because of what that just did to end it. Because of this promise that Jesus sets us free at a high cost by bearing the vengeance of God against all sin, by breaking his body and spilling his blood on our behalf. And so before we partake together, we're going to sing a song in response to the word of God in preparation for communion. And it's a song that was written in 1739. 279 years ago by a man named Charles Wesley. And I want to sing this song. I asked Ilya to sing this song at this time because the first stanza starts with this. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Listen, there might not be a thousand people in here, but let us sing this morning with renewed vigor as we respond to the word of God, as we prepare for communion, because you know why? Because we too have tongues that have been loosened. And that we now have the ability and the charge to proclaim his name and bring glory to his name. And so would you stand together with us this morning as we sing.